the Jewish views on the rise of the far right. A prominent rabbi from Stamford Hill makes worrying claims after swastikas are found daubed in a children's playground. Trent Park, the historic site, is in the hands of developers, but will luxury flats spell the end to a major part of history? And Chains of Sand, author Gemma Wayne tells us about her latest novel. First, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. A rabbi has warned of a rise in right-wing extremism after more swastikas appeared five days in a row at the entrance to a children's playground in the Amherst Park area of Stamford Hill. One was stuck onto the back of a car. Rabbi Herschel Gluck said it was no coincidence that a Jewish care home is nearby and that the incidents are attempts to intimidate and instill fear. The Metropolitan Police said it was aware of the material that has been appearing. A far-right activist has been charged with harassing the Labour MP Luciana Berger. The offence relates to allegations of malicious communications sent to her via social media by 23-year-old Joshua Bonehill Payne. A Scotland Yard spokesman said the alleged offences are racially or religiously aggravated. No court date has as yet been set. Bonehill Payne said he'll deny the charge, claiming that he's a victim of state tyranny. Campaigners fighting for a museum for Holocaust education at Trent Park in North London have criticised developers Barclay Homes over its offer of only a very small area. Most of the site will become luxury housing. The secret history of the Grade 2 listed mansion has only recently come to light. 1940s bugging technology, still in its infancy, led to interpreters in the house overhearing the first harrowing accounts of the Holocaust. Historians are warning that inadequate space could rob future generations of learning how the horrors of the camps came to Britain's attention. The former Israeli president, Shimon Peres was welcomed to the Vatican this week by Pope Francis, with both men stating they wanted to discuss a shared vision for a peaceful future and an end to violence. Mr Perez, who's 92, said it was unfortunate that since the two last met, much blood had been spilled in the Middle East, with increasing terrorist acts around the world against innocent people. And finally, for those of you who watch Judge Rinder's crime stories on daytime TV, you might like to know that the criminal barrister would dearly like to use more Yiddish in the programme. But he says, sadly, most people wouldn't know what he was talking about if he called somebody a lobus. And that's my cue to hand over to Andrew for the sport. Thanks, Viv. North London Raiders A striker Jordan Marks was named the MGBSFL Player of the Year at the league's end-of-season awards evening. The 22-year-old said he was over the moon, adding it's a perfect end to a really good season for me personally and all the boys at Raiders. The Secretary-General of the Israel Boxing Association has said it's a pity that politics has once again interfered with sports after a Syrian boxer refused to enter the ring with his Israeli opponent. Israel will have three representatives at this year's Wimbledon in Dudi Seller, Jonathan Ehrlich and 16-year-old Yeshai Uliel. Ehrlich will be hoping to at least match his run to the semi-final in the men's doubles competition at the Championships, which get underway on Monday. And finally... Dean Kramer has become the first Israeli to sign a contract with a Major League Baseball team. The 20-year-old was selected by the Los Angeles Dodgers as their 14th round pick in the 2016 MLB Draft. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. 
Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this week's edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News. Joining me is editor Richard Ferrer and online editor Jack Mendel. Welcome to you both. Rich, normally we would go into immense detail on the front page, but I think so much has been said about Europe, and now we know the outcome anyway. Let's just gloss over the front page, shall we? Yep, today's headlines, tomorrow's history. We went for a election day big splash in for Israel, said David Cameron as he addressed Jewish Cares Dinner last week. He didn't just talk about Israel, of course, so and the European Union. He also talked about his, quote, love for the community, how the Jewish community was an example of a community uh, integrate, integrating into British life in general and how it sets an example for minority communities. So clearly he was somebody who's very, he is very passionate about the Jewish community and what it provides and what it contributes to uh, British life. So he touched on the referendum because it was only a few hours and a few days before we all went to the polls, but also paid heartfelt tribute to Jewish care and all its incredible achievements. Bravo. Well, it is, of course, history now. So let's look inside the paper. And as we look at, well, Hezbollah, why are we seeing Hezbollah flags? Where are they? Well, we may very well see them on the 3rd of July next weekend. There's a bit of a legal quagmire here over a planned Islamic Human Rights Commission rally to mark Al-Quds Day for the freedom of the oppressed Palestinian people. And that's their quotes, not mine. It's unclear whether or not Hezbollah flags, Hamas flags are in fact illegal in terms of whether they're allowed to be uh, waived at these sort of demonstrations because Hezbollah has a military wing which is prescribed as a terrorist organisation. However, it also has a political wing, which is not prescribed as a terrorist organisation, and both wings fly under the same flag. So we've been trying for weeks now to pursue this issue because the last thing we want to see on the streets of London is people waving anti-Israel flags or Hezbollah or Hamas flags, terrorist organisation emblems and banners. makes me and obviously most uh, listeners to this programme feel very unsettled and uneasy. So we wanted to get some sort of legal clarification from the police. It's still an ongoing issue and we'll follow it up next week. And if these sort of things are unfurled, then it'd be interesting to see if law and order will take action. Yeah, and and this issue has been rolling on for a while. Um, I remember when Netanyahu came to the UK some months ago, I went to to the protest outside Whitehall and there were a number of altered Hezbollah flags. They had slight alterations. So the police couldn't do anything. So they were walking outside Downing Street with what looked like Hezbollah flags. A couple of people were arrested and then re-arrested under a different alleged offence. It's a a very difficult issue because the protesters know the laws so they can circumvent them and get around them in very canny ways. Also, the other thing as well is that I'm not so sure I realised that there was such issues regarding flags. So I'm almost quite pleased to hear in some strange way that there is a bit of confusion over what can be done with flags and what can't, because there have been occasions when I've seen flags that look questionable. They don't look like they belong to a particular country, that's for sure. But they look like they could belong to an organisation that's maybe less favourable. So it's, it's interesting to see that there is a little bit of confusion over this. And it's not just on the streets. I mean, at football stadiums and and other public events, you see uh, swastikas and ISIS flags being waved. And who can forget the the scenes on the streets of High Street Kensington in 2012 during the height of the last Gaza war where you had people holding up placards saying Hitler was right and Jews to the gas. Where do you draw the line? And where does fair 
public comment and freedom of speech become incitement and pure hatred and anti-Semitism. Let's move on to another story. And of course, this program had already been recorded by the time that we learned about the horrible death of MP Joe Cox. And it would appear as if the Jewish community has responded to her death in, in the way that you wouldn't really be surprised to learn that anyone, regardless of their faith, had been assassinated, which is what most people believe is the case. We live in a, a fairly tolerant country and it came as a real shock to everyone to hear that somebody had been murdered on the streets for being a politician. It really shocked us and uh, we had tributes coming in from the community, from Jewish members of parliament. We had uh, Fabian Hamilton uh, writing in the Jewish News this week uh, in a tribute to her. And it, it's kind of hard to know where to pick up now because on the one hand you don't want to let this kind of extremism win. You, know, you want to carry on. And plenty of people have been quoting Joe Cox saying that there's far more that uh, unites us than divides us. So I think as a community, we've, we've stood with Joe Cox and hopefully that will continue and we can build a better politics after that. And I guess, Rich, though, that there will be some people obviously saying that although Joe herself wasn't Jewish, it's very telling just how the community has responded. Well, who can who cannot be emotionally wrought after seeing the scenes? And uh, the, the you know the woman was a, a mother of two, uh, had a loving husband, and uh, and was very beloved. It turns out in her local constituency, I have to admit I wasn't that familiar with her work. She'd only been in Westminster for just over a year, but how she lived her life and and the manner of her death was obviously quite overwhelming I think and still is now you know even a, a week or so later and the fact that she was uh, clearly a symbol I think of us maybe pulling back from the brink slightly in terms of the use of language and the tone of the political discourse that we've had in the last couple of weeks and the absolute black and white sort of intolerance of the other person's position. I think she was a far more nuanced character. I think she was somebody that saw the good and bad in both because everything is good and bad. A lot of things are not uh, polarised and I think she saw the balance and I think if we can take that from her and learn that from her, then hopefully um, her life will not have been in vain and her death is something perhaps that we can take something positive from. Certainly is. Well, here's hoping. And obviously, naturally, those of us at the Jewish News and Jewish Views, obviously, offer our deepest condolences to Joe's family at this horrible, horrible time. Let's just shoehorn really quickly in this story about artist Jordan Dawson, a hyper-realist artist, I believe, is the expression. I've never even heard of that, but my goodness me, looking at his work, I can understand why. Mm, yes, double page spread in this week's paper of a young uh, artist, 21-year-old Jordan Dawson. He's got his first exhibition at a cinema in Boreham Wood. I would highly, highly recommend going along to see it. When I first saw his art, I thought, isn't it amazing what you can do on an iPhone in terms of photography these days? <laughs> this is his picture-perfect art. He uses ostensibly just a pencil and he creates these most faithful authentic representations of celebrities like Miley Cyrus and David Beckham and Rihanna and Johnny Depp I, it's very difficult to do do justice you really have to see these yourself because when I saw them I absolutely had to look twice and three times and then actually you see the detail the microscopic detail and the exact precision this young man takes in his work and the hours and hours he must take he said Brad Pitt took him over 300 hours just for one portrait. What patience, extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. I can only say that I, I feel that it's it's almost so good 
that it looks too much like a photograph and therefore it almost detracts from the skill behind it. Amazing. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for for this week's look at the paper. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Now, as you heard a little earlier on in the news with Viv, a rabbi has warned of a rise in right-wing extremism after more swastikas appeared five days in a row at the entrance to a children's playground in the Amherst Park area of Stamford Hill. Anti-Semitic graffiti is nothing new in such a densely Jewish populated area of London. But the question is, why is it that Rabbi Herschel Gluck feels now more than ever extremist right poses more of a threat? I've been finding out the answer to that very question by speaking to him. I think uh, this is uh, a phenomenon that we're seeing all over Europe, that the right is getting stronger. I'm speaking, of course, about the extremist right. And uh, there are elements that are pushing this agenda in the UK as well. But can you really take that at what appears to be surface value? Because... The right, the extreme right, as we call them, has always been there. It's never really gone away. I mean, even after, obviously, all the horrible events of World War II and and since, the extreme right has never really gone away. It's just been kept at bay. Do you think that now more than ever there are concerns that it's going to rise up again? I don't want to overdo it. But at the same time, we need to nip the situation in the bud. And I would say that that is a correct description of the situation, that it's still small, but now is the time to think about it and to think of the reasons why the extreme right is raising its head and what to do to counter this problem. And I assume that you've given it some thought yourself. How would you foresee us countering the problem? I think education is key here, that uh, I know people say rather sarcastically that history has taught us, that history hasn't taught us anything, Uh, but we have to engage, tell people about the history, explain to them the evils of the extreme right and the dangers that they pose in order to preempt the extreme right from repeating what happened in the past, God forbid. See, the problem is, though, that education surely is a two-way street. If someone doesn't want to learn history or doesn't want to learn what has been and gone before, how can we inflict that on them? It, surely it's, it's a no-win situation. I wouldn't use the term inflict. Forgive the but, bad choice of phrase. But, but I, 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 I would say that this is for the benefit of each individual and society at large to be aware of the consequences of the philosophy of the extreme right and where it can lead in during the rise of, of fascism in the 1930s, it led to a terrible catastrophe for all peoples of Europe. So therefore, we don't want that to happen again. So so therefore, I would say there's a lot of self-interest in play here for everyone. And when you've spoken to members of, say, your own community, have they expressed similar concerns? Are you aware that other people think along the same lines? Or is this, are you feeling a bit as if it's just you thinking this at the moment? I, 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 I think that this, these concerns are felt by many people in 
this community and in many communities and also in the security services and the police that they have very strong concerns about the threat which comes from the extreme right. And would you say that Stamford Hill, Golders Green, other typically Jewish areas of London are more at threat of activity from extreme right behaviour. And not just let's not just use Jews as examples. Let's also say, for example, South Hall, which is densely populated with members of the Muslim community. Would you say that certain areas are more susceptible to extreme rights than just a general threat to the everyday public? Certainly, but at the same time, uh, the general public isn't immune from this threat because a threat to any section of society has repercussions for for society at large. Such as? That uh, when someone plants a bomb, there isn't a genetic profile or racial profile on the bomb who it affects. Anyone passing for whatever reason would be hurt by the bomb. And same thing by hatred. Hatred, uh, even though it's more abstract, hatred engenders hatred, and, and it makes society a less pleasant place for everyone. Do you think there is ever a hope that maybe one day that the face of extremism could be wiped out, or are we just living in a pipe dream? As a Jew, I believe in the coming of Moshiach, so ultimately the world will become good. But at, at present, it is an illness, it is a disease that we have to cure. And... Would you say that there is anything, say, for example, that maybe people listening, members of the community at large that are listening to this, that we should be doing perhaps to try and help counter the effects of extremism? Perhaps becoming a little bit more tolerant of others, having more love for others, having more concern for others, to be more compassionate. The extreme right hates compassion, and we have to counter it by having more compassion for other people close to us and far from us and for members of other communities, especially other ethnic communities. But as a people, aren't we typically compassionate anyway? We are. But if good is good, it doesn't mean that better isn't better. Rabbi Herschel Gluck expressing his concerns there about the rise of extremist right activities in densely populated Jewish areas such as Stamford Hill. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by journalist and author Emma Klein and newcomer radio producer Mark Machado. They will be discussing relations between the Catholic and Jewish communities. This following Shimon Peres' meeting with Pope Francis. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to historian Dr Helen Fry about the redevelopment plans for Trent Park. Now, a new book called Chains of Sand is the first fictional address of the current Israeli-Palestinian crisis. It's the work of Gemma Wayne, and if her name sounds familiar, then you may know her rather famous father, Jeff Wayne, who created the musical War of the Worlds. Anyway, I digress. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about the book from Gemma herself. She started by asking her how exactly would she describe her genre of writing. My writing slots somewhere between commercial and literary fiction. And it tends to 
to delve into kind of cross-cultural themes quite often that's kind of a topic I'm quite passionate about but at the core it's really it's just you know it's a drama it's it's often to do with families it's about intimate stories of life and when you say cultural and family is that because your culture your family you drawing from that Sometimes in my my first book, After Before, I was asked quite a lot about why I wasn't drawing at all from my own life. One of the characters was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. So that was obviously far removed from my own experiences. Whereas this new book, Chains of Sand, it's based half in London and half in Israel. And it's very much delving into issues of Jewish identity and anti-Semitism and the conflict there. So definitely I'm drawing from some of my own experiences in that sense. And what is your background? My father is American. He's Jewish. His great-grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi from Russia. His father was a total atheist, and he kind of is as well. And my mother is Reformed Jewish. So that's kind of led to my own identity, which I consider is to still be quite shifting. It's changed a lot over the years. I started off going to North London Collegiate School, which is at the time, maybe 30% of my year was Jewish. So it was something that kind of everyone knew what that was about. You know, we had the Jewish festivals, we had a Jewish assembly once a week. And I never really considered being Jewish as a thing, you know, that made you different. It was never an issue. Then when I went to university much later, suddenly I was the first Jewish person that a lot of my new friends there had ever met. So it put me in this really strange position of, in some ways, being slightly exoticized, in other ways, kind of being a representative or explainer of what it was to be Jewish. And that made me start thinking a lot more about my own identity and what it really meant. And now, I mean, I go through phases. I I, I identify myself as certainly culturally Jewish, and I really love all the traditions that are involved, and I'm very proud of my Jewish identity. But I... I kind of go on and off with certain elements of the more religious side of it. Were you writing at university? I've always written. Ever since a child, it was what I wanted to do. And for me, it's always been quite a cathartic part of my own expression. Whenever there's been a big moment in my life, I try to write because that's how I kind of feel most myself on paper. And it's a way for me of just working through emotions. I think around just towards the end of university, I started writing more fiction, started writing short stories. When I was doing my postgraduate journalism, I ventured into a children's book just to test out whether I could sustain an entire novel, which I never did anything with in the end, but it kind of just gave me confidence that, okay, I can get to the end of a book. So yeah, I, I began around then. People always want to know writers, their secrets. I mean, I know that the bottom line is you've got to sit down and write it, but how do you... How do you draw your inspiration and then actually do that bit where you get it on the paper or the computer? Yeah, I've I've kind of gone at it from two different angles. At the beginning, I just kind of had an idea, felt passionately about it, started at the beginning on a blank page and went till the end, which I think can give you quite raw moments and it can it can be very interesting to see where it goes. But now I'm very much more of a plotter and I usually start with an idea for a concept or a theme that I'm really interested in because I want that whatever the issues the characters are dealing with throughout the book, I want that to sustain me as a writer, my interest and the reader's interest hopefully for, you know, for the whole novel. So I start with that and then I love the research side of, of writing. So I usually do a lot of research, interviewing people, trying to gain insights, doing lots of reading and I kind of gather all of that and then really carefully start developing characters and plotting out the chapters and 
really going all the way from from the beginning to the end although there's often tangents on the way and those for me are sometimes the best bits you kind of get that eureka moment where things slot into place and you, you never intended it yeah, so you see the little characters dancing in front of you and you sort of stand back and watch them. Definitely. Well, in Chains of Sand, there it's it's a three strands of narrative. And when I first planned the book, it was two strands. And it just kind of felt as I was going along that something was missing. And then this character who started off as a very peripheral character just kept kind of creeping into the fore and I wanted to explore her a bit more. And suddenly I realised that actually she was integral to the whole plot. And I decided to give her the whole third strand to her and go back to her backstory and how that then affected the other two strands. And now that you've mentioned the book, tell us a little bit about Chains of Sand. So Chains of Sand is, it's set against the backdrop of the conflict between Israel and Gaza in 2014. And it traces the parallel stories of two men. First, we have Udi, who's a 26-year-old veteran of the IDF. He was in an elite combat unit. He's killed five men. He wants to leave Israel and move to London. Then we have Daniel, who's a similarly aged British Northwest London Jew. He's kind of got a really comfortable life. He's a banker. He's an Arsenal fan. But he he wants to leave London. He, he wants to move to Tel Aviv. So we kind of follow their parallel journeys, which are driven by very different push and pull factors. But what they share is a sense of their destiny not being in their own hands. And when the conflict breaks out, it's amidst chaos in Israel and anti-Semitism in London that they both are trying to unpack their identities and make some big decisions about, about their futures. Alongside that then is that third strand, which is a tale of forbidden love between a Jewish girl and an Arabic man set in Jerusalem a decade earlier. Very good. And it is quite intriguing. I mean, I have read the book and it's it, the, there's a lot, a lot of bits and pieces. But then they just, they do, you do tie the strands all very nicely together. That, that must have been your eureka moment. You see people all coming together. And you've launched the book recently. And what feedback have you had? What, how's it been received so far? So far, it's been great. I was I was kind of acutely aware while writing it that because it's a controversial topic, because a lot of people have quite impassioned opinions about the conflict, about Israel, about everything related to it, that I probably was going to upset a lot of people at some point in the book. And I think that most people reading it, there will be some characters that they re- that really resonate with them, and other characters that you know go completely against what they believe. What I was trying to do in the book is it's not meant to be a missive of my own political agenda. What I really wanted to do is to explore all these different voices. Because I think that quite often we view this conflict within a very black and white framework. And because sometimes we feel defensive or, you know, we have, so, we have such conviction about things, we get pushed towards these more extreme positions where I think sometimes we start losing our ability to really empathise with the other side. And I, I, I think that is... A dangerous place to be. I think that the more that we can even just acknowledge the narrative of the other, then the more chance there is to to move forward at all. So that's what I wanted to do, to explore these personal stories of love, of loss, of hope, of, you know, there's humour in it. And just to show that on both sides, that exists. And there's a huge mass of grey between the black and white. How do you go about researching characters that you don't relate to? Well, I think that as with you know, in life, as with most people, there are elements of all people that we can relate to. I think we're all made up of a compilation of parts. And 
even in the way we might feel about something, a lot of people are quite conflicted. So I did feel at some points, not that it was difficult to write the character, but I felt slightly disloyal to portraying portraying a character that maybe I'd interviewed someone a bit similar and maybe portraying them in a different way to maybe the way they would have liked to be seen. But I'll I'll always remember one of the people who very kindly shared a lot of insights with me was a soldier who'd been in the IDF. He'd been in Gaza. He'd lost a leg there. And he was talking to me about his time there. And he was so sensitive and thoughtful and, despite his experience, really wanting to try to contribute to help peace efforts. And I was so struck by kind of his philosophy on all this. And then in the same breath, he described to me blowing up one of the tunnels in Gaza, which included the house of a family on top of it. And his words about that were, and that's what you get when you mess with the IDF. And the kind of, the brutal way in which he said that, juxtaposed to his sensitivity and his desire for peace, just affirmed to me how, you know, how conflicted we are even within ourselves. And I think that's an important part of the story. Author Gemma Wayne talking to Kate Fulton there about her latest work, Chains of Sand. For more information or to obtain a copy, then you can always tap it into your preferred search engine. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Now, Trent Park is one of those rare gems of a building that was instrumental in the winning of World War II. You heard us mention it earlier on in the programme that a dispute has broken out over its future. The Grade 2 listed site has recently been bought out by developers and the plan is to convert it into luxury apartments. A committee of individuals, including historian Dr Helen Fry, don't like the amount of space within the development that's been allocated to a museum to educate visitors about its significance in the war. Fascinating case, this one, and our community reporter Diana Toman has been finding out more for us by speaking to Dr Fry herself. She started by asking her to tell us what the campaign see as the issue. The campaign has been fighting for the last 18 months for a national museum at Trent Park and we're asking for half the stable block, the ground floor and the basement as a mere minimum to tell the hugely significant story of its World War II history but also its colourful pre-war history. There is too much of importance at stake here just to allow the whole site to be turned into luxury development. They say, this is Barclay Group, they say that they've got 45,000 square metres, 52 acres, and they're going to put aside 500 square metres for what they call ancillary uses. That wouldn't be enough? It really amounts to a couple of what I would say broom cupboards upstairs and a couple more downstairs. And you cannot create a museum with effectively four rooms and one of which it is envisaged would be a cafe. And so no one would really, it would fail. No one would really visit as such. And we are talking not about a local museum, we're talking about something national, a smaller version because of the space of Bletchley Park or along the parallel size of Bentley Priory. Let's talk about Bletchley Park because 
Bentley Priory, if I'm right, was the other of the two houses that housed Nazi officers during the war. Bentley Priory was actually used by RAF Bomber Command. And so its significance was in terms of air intelligence and plotting German aircraft. Right. And so no prisoners of war were ever held there. Was it only then Trent Park that held prisoners of war? Well, Trent Park opened in 1940 and held all prisoners, lower rank primarily. But from 1942, it was reserved for the German generals. And there they lived a life of luxury, almost like a gentleman's club. And it lulled them into a false sense of security because they'd had their interrogation at another site and they thought their war was over. I mean, they had expected to be housed in Nissen huts with a bit of barbed wire. But of course, to actually give them a life of luxury meant that they were completely unguarded in their conversations. And therefore, let slip important information about German troop movements and and bombing and all that sort of thing. Yes. Armaments and and everything else. Yes, and even more significantly, they start talking about secrets of the Nazi war machine. And we're talking about intelligence, which some of the lower rank prisoners wouldn't be privy to. Although eventually some of them did start to talk. But we're, we're talking about V1, you know, the doodle bug, the terrifying doodle bugs that would come over. V2 and eventually V3. So we're talking about highly sophisticated, eventually rocket technology. And of course, from Trent Park, they were tracking the atomic bomb programme. And they were talking about the final solution. That for me is the most shocking and difficult part of the research into Trent Park. And there were two sister sites in Buckinghamshire for lower rank prisoners. And there too, they talked about atrocities. And now you have from the mouths of the German generals, admissions effectively of war crimes. And we're not just talking about discussions on how many Jews they killed, but exactly how they did it. So step by step discussions about marching them with trucks, you know, to the edge of pits and getting to dig pits. I mean, some of it is just horrifying. This is the actual logistics of how they're going to murder the Jews. How they how they did it. Because it's already, past how they'd already done it. So this was after the Van Zee conference? Yes, but at Trent Park, they picked up, even in 1940, the commanding officer, Kendrick, who was a senior MI6 spymaster, sent reports up saying most prisoners talk about atrocities. We picked up about the Lot's ghetto, for example, and then 1941, we picked up about large-scale atrocities in Russia. And I understand, Helen, that you've already got a petition that's gained about 1,500 signatories? Actually, there's 1,500 we've got on a manual petition for people who can't do online, perhaps they don't have a computer. But we do have an online petition with over 3,500 signatures. Already? Yes. And is there a deadline for when, when the submission has to be put before the Barclay Group in order for, to stop the development? No, it's ongoing. So we would urge people to sign that. And we're not asking for the whole site or the whole mansion house. So we think what we're asking for is reasonable and that something has to be given to the public. Of course, Trent Park has an educational, very, very strong educational covenant attached to it. And if Barclay developed the whole of the site, they're basically sweeping aside 
that educational use. It is for community public use. And Trent Park is owned by whom? Trent Park is currently owned by Barclay Homes, who incidentally have got a phenomenal reputation for high-end developments, good quality. I mean, you know, we couldn't really ask for a better development to have taken this over. But what we are pleading for to their hearts, really, is not just to think about the profit, but to give a little bit of that. We're only asking for no more than 4% of our overall build. Right. Have Enfield Borough Council had any input into all of this? There have been discussions behind the scenes, the pre-planning discussions. Barclay Homes are hoping to go for full planning in September of this year. So we don't have long to reach an agreement of some kind If we don't get what we feel this history deserves, then we will place objections when the planning goes in. But we don't want to get to that point. You would like to try and work with them to find a solution? Yes, and actually our vision for the museum is something which the nation can be proud of and which Barclay can be proud of. And in fact, there is nowhere else that it could actually happen, is there? No, no, there isn't. This is the site and you get a sense of the place. Like with Bletchley, you stand where it happened and where so much was discovered, so much war-winning intelligence. We can't let that die. Historian Dr Helen Fry talking to Diana Toman there about the redevelopment plans for Trent Park. Let me at this stage read out a statement from the developers, the Barclay Group. They say... Our vision for the site has been shaped by an extensive consultation process and is driven by our goal to secure a long-term legacy for the site. We will continue to work with the campaign. You're listening to The Jewish Views. This is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. And joining Adam Bradley and me today are journalist and author Emma Klein, and look out, there's another radio producer about. We welcome newcomer Mark Machado. The subject for this edition is based on the news we heard a little earlier on with Viv. Shimon Perez and Pope Francis met this week to discuss their vision for long-term peace. Quite extraordinary when you consider relations between Catholics and Jews used to be far from peaceful itself. So we thought we'd take the opportunity to talk about how far the two communities have come and the similarities between the religions. The question is, how do the Catholic and Jewish communities compare? And also, what's the relationship like between the two communities compared to years gone by? Well, let's start with you, Mark. Although you're not Jewish or Catholic, you had a lot of Catholic influence in your life, haven't you? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd call myself culturally Catholic, which in terms of Makes traditionally sense. my whole family are Catholic and I was yeah. brought up quite, well, I went to a really religious school and I'm st- some of my distant relatives still practice. But I'm, I'm either culturally Catholic or very lapsed Catholic. I'm quite agnostic in, in my kind of beliefs. I think part of the reason why, why this has come about, why, why the Pope is, is on a mission to go out and talk to other faiths, not, not just the Jewish faith, faith, is because he's basically got to now because the Catholic Church is in the midst of a crisis especially in in western europe where it's it's losing a lot of people like myself who you know 
40, 50 years ago, my equivalent would have gone to church, would have been a practicing Catholic, would be contributing to the church. And now people like myself have tended to drift away. And the Pope has to be seen to be kind of reactive to this and, and do something and go out. And I'm maybe being slightly cynical because I, I quite like this new Pope, but I think he's got to go out and do good PR. And, and it's good PR for people like me to see the Pope you know. I think he's an amazing man, and, and, and because I've been to a Catholic school myself <laughs> as a Jew, as a practicing Jew, I've been to a Catholic, a Jesuit school. Yeah. So I know exactly what you're talking about, and yeah. And I know that a lot of the Catholics that I knew at that school are like you. They've become, well, sort of agnostic, I suppose. What do you think, Adam? Well, I, I was, my father, as I've said on this program before, was born a Catholic, and it's surprising how many similarities there are i mean so many religions tend to focus on their differences but the similarities are so apparent i mean the basis of both religions are the same mm. and for me it's it's almost natural for the two religions to start getting closer to each other because the world's becoming such a a smaller place with the global village and you know everything everything's so under the spotlight now that I'm actually quite reassured that this is happening. Sadly, I think it's probably due to the, the Holocaust that it actually started and that, that there was um, the Christian faith actually saw the wrongs that were going on there and, and quite rightly made a stand about well, it. Well, the Catholic faith, of course, is, has always, because I know this is having gone to a Catholic school, the Catholic priests have always said Jesus was born and died a Jew, which is interesting. And you, of course, Emma, worked for a, a Catholic newspaper. Well, not worked, but often contributed and still do occasionally, yes. Basically, the Christian church, both Catholic and Protestant, for so long, the anti-Semitism was created by the idea, although they might have said Jesus was born and died a Jew, they said the Jews killed, killed Jesus. Jesus. And that was something that was going on for centuries, the Christ killers. But obviously, as Adam said, the Holocaust. And the interesting thing was there's a lot of controversy over the role of the Pope at the time, Pius XII, who was Pope during the Holocaust. Now, an Israeli writer has said he saved thousands of Jews. Others have said he ignored the plight of Jews. Some people have said he sheltered some Jews in his home. So he's quite a controversial figure. I think it's become, it's become pretty well known now that he did shelter Jews yeah. in the Vatican. Sure. Well, this Israeli author, Pinchas Lapid, said thousands were saved by him by being sent to South America or something like that. But the very obviously, Pope uh, John the third, he was Roncalli, Giovanni Roncalli or something, he had also tried to save Jews during the Holocaust. And while his short tenure, five years as Pope from 58 to 63, he was very, very pro-Jewish. And a lot of Jews became much more, shall we say, comfortable with the Catholic Church. Well, surely he's the Pope who said that the Jews didn't. No, no, no. Unfortunately, he died too early. He might have said it, but the actual papal document... I forgot what you call a papal... Encyclical? Encyclical, absolutely. In 1965, <laughs> two years after Pope John died, by his successor, Pope John Pope Paul VI, was Nostra Etate, in our time. They said the Jews did not kill Jesus. Judaism was a valid religion like any other. And that, you know, was a hugely significant moment in Catholic-Jewish relations. And the current Pope, Francis 
is opposed to conversionary tactics from Catholics towards Jews. Because a lot of people have always thought Jews should convert. They won't go to heaven. But he says, no, they don't need to. Well, there was a progression as well, wasn't it? John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, yeah, offered was, a mea culpa that, for the very, Holocaust. That's quite true. That, that was, so you can almost track... There's like, you know, where, where there is the relationship sure. building and building. What right. I'm interested in, actually, is, is to sort of look at it on the flip side. Because it's all kind of, you know, it's because of the Holocaust, the, the Christian, the Catholic Church felt perhaps a certain degree of guilt. It's unlike Catholics and Jews to have <laughs> guilt, isn't it? And, um, wondering, actually, what, what's the... I mean, is there anything that where Judaism's changed that has brought it more close ties to Catholicism it's it's strange because a few years ago I actually went to Jerusalem and mm. obviously there's a, there's a number of really significant sites for Christians oh, in yeah. Jerusalem sure, sure. but it's probably the only I've, I've been to most of the major pilgrimage sites for Catholics in the world Rome Lourdes all, all these kind of places but it, uh, Jerusalem is one of the few places I went to and you barely see a Catholic priest over there really? you have to go really looking for them because really? it, it's Jerusalem and the Holy Lands now are m- very much a place of pilgrimage for the kind of Eastern Orthodox oh. part right. of, of Christianity. And I'm not sure at what point it started, but the kind of the Catholic Church just started to drift away. Or it started a very long time ago, I think around the time of the Crusades, mm-hmm. where they started to drift away from looking towards Jerusalem as being a main kind of pilgrimage site. So there is, of course, isn't there, that famous church in Jerusalem where. Jesus was supposed to church be in the Holy Sepulchre. Yeah. The Holy yes. Sepulchre, where yeah. Jesus was supposed to be born, and the Church of England and the Protestant Church, anyway, and the Catholics have always argued about the place exactly where Jesus was born or was, isn't there? Yeah, and yeah. There was and a terrible fight about it, wasn't there? Yeah, and the first yeah. thing you, you'll you'll notice when you go into that church is that compared to a, a Anglican church or a Catholic church, is it's really chaotic, where yes. Anglican churches or Catholic yeah. churches tend to be quite. People are quite quiet. They're whispering. They're, they're, it's quite solemn when you go into those churches, and it's more eastern. It's more charismatic. In a funny way, it's more more like Judaism. It's more like a synagogue. Yeah. It's that, it is that noise, and there's things going. And there's, yeah. there are priests walking around swinging incense, so, and you, you don't know where to look. You're right. Actually, there, it's, right? Yeah, it's I always remember place. from my childhood the thing that at Passover you must invite non-Jews to to yes, the Seder night, yeah. and my parents always invited some of the Jesuit priests. Yeah. Right. Uh, because and they used to come and they used to love it and they used to sing the hymns and so it's nothing new to me that the Jews and the Catholics have a lot in common. Well, yeah. especially in especially in, in Britain, where you, they're you, minorities. Yeah, where they're both minorities and both at different times been oppressed over last you know last centuries. You'd imagine in the UK that there'd probably be a lot of you know common ground. To share and all, and also you know culturally they they share a lot of similar beliefs. I mean, Catholics yes. believe in large families, Jewish people Orthodox believe Jews, large yeah. families, but you know just kind of love within the family and, and knowing your your yeah. your distant relatives. These are all kind of common. Well, my late grandparents used to in their nineties every night were down on their knees saying Hail Marys, and, yeah. and I, I always call them my from Catholic with from is <laughs> ultra religious, yeah, because yeah. they are. They were like the sort of black hat version of, of Catholicism. Yeah, there really is a lot of similarities. I, th- I think so with Catholicism because it blends in. It's all it's in terms of practicing. It's very similar to, to being a, an Anglican. You don't notice it so much in society. Where if you're an Orthodox Jew, then obviously you, you kind of you wear it on your sleeve yes. almost literally <laughs> yeah. Yeah. where you can be an, an orthodox Catholic and no one would ever notice I've got family members who, who go to church every day and, and 
that that's just part of their life and right. no one notices. The other thing you do have mm. within Catholicism that you don't that is also similar in within Judaism in the UK is that you also have pockets of it within certain mm. communities. Mm. But because again it's so similar to to the Anglican faith mm. and, and also it's getting kind of dilute beliefs religious belief is getting diluted you don't notice yeah. it so much for example you know parts of West London mm. are, are very very Catholic areas and you know other parts of Manchester and Liverpool mm. are as well Interesting. so I mean the, the parts of these cities like Golders Green is is in London <laughs> yeah. as, as the sort of Jewish yeah well, well if you go if you go to Ealing Broadway for example there's a massive big Ealing, Ealing Abbey which is the school I went Ealing to this, yeah it's a Benedictine run monastery yeah. over there and I went to the school that they run yeah. and that's just off Ealing, Ealing Broadway and then you've got the Polish church which is a huge <laughs> community in it which is again a Catholic church and obviously Polish you know there's been a lot of Polish migrants come sure. over in recent years so that that community is only getting renewed and refreshed and, re- and reinvigorated just when kind of you know the traditional English Catholics and, and the Poles who had been here for a few generations was their religion was starting to kind of fade away mm-hmm. almost right Oh. So it's do, invigorated. Do you, do you know many oh. many Jews as friends? I yeah, I did. Well, Phil, <laughs> Phil is one. Yeah, Phil, Phil is uh, Phil is a friend. Friend to everyone, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my my school was 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 very religious, and I don't think I knew I didn't have any Jewish friends till I started work. But you know, I get on fine because you know uh, at the heart of Catholicism, and I, and the word Catholic actually is Greek for universal. So. Oh. The heart of Catholicism is that you know we should be universal. Catholicism, you know, sometimes when I when I kind of you know sometimes I just have like to have a look at what Catholic, the Catholic press are saying, and some people in the kind of right of the church are like maybe it's time for Catholic state or, or stuff like that. It's actually like that's not what Catholicism is. Catholicism is having a central core of beliefs that's obviously centered around Jesus being the Son of God, and basically living a compassionate life. And that that's why, you know, you shouldn't, if you're a good Catholic, there's no reason why you can't have friends of every other faith and why you can't, you know, go to Passover at anyone's house or, you know, go, you know. Which makes it almost more ironic that two faiths that's so similar couldn't see eye to eye. Well, so well I think part of the problem was, and we were talking about, you know, the history of the different popes over the last, you know, last half a decade or half a century or so. And, and part of the problem was, is that the Catholic Church and the Pope was politically very powerful in Europe and and right. then across the world, but in the last, you know, probably since for about the last hundred years, that power has kind of faded away. Basically, when when you're in the newsroom and there's a big pope story, you know, if, <laughs> if the pope dies, God forbid, or yeah. you, or some or a pope retires, it's always like, well, how important is that? How much do the people care? And it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of culturally Catholic people out there, mm-hmm. as I would refer to them mm-hmm. as. Mm-hmm. But actually, do they care? Do they not care? I would argue that they do care. There's still, you know. Thought it's the biggest church in the world. It's the biggest, you know. He's the biggest spirit. He's spiritual leader. Spiritual leader with the most followers. But how much political power does he have? Mm. It's interesting that now we have a South American pope, where you know mm. politically he's probably quite powerful in that that region. Where in Europe, you know, realistically, you've got Italy, which is where you know, obviously, where the Vatican is. It's meant to be like the most Catholic country in the world. But you know, you don't have to watch TV long in Italy <laughs> to know that they they don't necessarily That's have true. Yeah. yeah. So is, do you think he's become more of a figurehead than an authoritative leader? I think he's becoming more of a figurehead. I think this pope in particular is is, is fantastic in terms of he's got people like me suddenly thinking like, you know, what what does he stand for? What does the church stand for? Do I want to be associated with this again? The previous two popes that I've had in my lifetime have been a bit 
I want to say standoffish, and mm, where this, yeah, ben, mm. Benedict in particular was very was is very conservative, and yeah. and you know he for me the the important thing is is that you don't get stuck into the dogma of the church, right. and that you know being being a Catholic isn't about going around telling everyone shouldn't have an abortion or you know gay marriage shouldn't be legal it's it's more about just being a good person right. on a day-to-day that's that's what my take is on it and mm. i think that's what this pope's take on it is as well that's it's very interesting you're saying all this because i was thinking while you were talking about when i was at school which was very 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 many years ago the catholic the jesuit priests there all had the same feeling about there were three Jewish boys in the school so it was easy with three Jewish boys if you like but nonetheless we were all treated the way that you've just been talking about the way the current Pope wants to treat Catholics to treat people they all the priests behaved towards us as though we were special they didn't try to convert us and they it was extraordinary interesting so it was it was just uh, maybe it was just those that particular load of Jesuits I don't know well, I, I, sometimes I think kind of the, the clergy, because I've got a couple of members of my family who are, who are or well, one's sadly no longer with us, she was quite old, who are nuns. And I, th- I think with, with the clergy, the Catholic clergy in particular, people get caught up in this idea that, oh, you know, so-and-so's a nun or so-and-so's a priest. They're a priest. Don't tell, you know, don't tell him about your cousin who's, you know, <laughs> who's doing that or don't tell him about, you know, your aunt who's not married, who's living with so-and-so. It's like, actually... They probably don't care too much about that stuff. They 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 are doing it for for kind of pious reasons yeah. and for good reasons. But there's also the thing, of course, with you, Emma, that the, the Catholic the Catholics asked you a Jewess to write for their magazine. Well, right. I mean, because <laughs> I I knew at that time I knew the then editor, and I mean I then knew the following editors after that. Well, I, I was always interested in interfaith. I suppose that's one of the things uh, Christian Jewish relations. So perhaps that was one of the reasons that I got into that sort of thing. We've got a message here on our live feed from Jonathan, who put a very interesting question, actually. He says, are the parallels between Catholicism and Judaism based on the common mantra of unity, community and love? But interpretations have muddied the water. That's very good. I think it agrees with you entirely. Just like to point out that anyone listening to this on the podcast or on Spectrum Radio, the comments are only for the live feed on Facebook. So anyone listening, please don't text in. Anyway, there we are. I'm afraid that's all we have to leave it. My thanks to our guests, journalist and author Emma Klein and radio producer Mark Machado. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Well, it's time now for our rabbinic thought for the week and this time it comes from Rabbi James Barden from Share Tzedek, North London Reform Synagogue. Barely a week ago, a member of Parliament was assassinated. This word was never used in media coverage. Why not? Sometimes we read that Joe Cox was murdered or killed. Sometimes reports simply say that she died when she was attacked. The choice of words is odd. She was an elected politician, a representative of the people, and she died in the course of exercising her public duties. She had only just finished meeting with constituents. By all accounts, she was killed by a person who was aware of her identity and waited for her and may have shouted a political slogan at the time. And that is what is called assassination. 
A week before that, nearly 50 people were killed in Orlando, Florida, in the U.S., in what can only be called a massacre, although that word doesn't seem to be used. They were gay people, and they were killed because they were gay. And the killer was repeatedly described as having shown evidence in many different ways of extreme hostility towards homosexual people. Yet, all of these elements were likewise questioned, downplayed, and deliberately obscured by large sections of the press, especially in the U.S., but also here. Since then, we have had our referendum. Nearly all the campaigning connected with it struck me as bitter and rancorous. I was shocked by some of the material that came through my own letterbox. This violence of language, the coarsening of political discourse altogether, was a development which Jo Cox herself felt strongly about. Plus, there were the distortions, the endless non-issues, matters which featured prominently, yet which had little or nothing to do with EU membership. We need to take responsibility, all of us, for the way we talk about public matters which relate to the welfare of all of us. The Jewish notion of Lashon Hora, Lashon Hara, evil speech, saying bad things about others, or making sure that we do not say bad things about others, is something that we need to focus on, now more than ever. And difficult as it is to adhere to, maybe it's a Jewish ethical standard that deserves broader application, something we can share with our wider world. Secondly, it was apparent to all of us witnessing the wider so-called Brexit debate that migration was an issue on many people's minds, whether it actually had anything to do with the EU or not. It has slowly dawned on me that migration, the movement of huge numbers of people, is now a fact of life here on planet Earth. Maybe this has often characterized human affairs. Maybe what we thought we had, till relatively recently, was actually unusual. Relatively settled populations in relatively stable nation-states. During much of the Cold War period, for instance, movement was largely not possible. Things are different now. Great masses are on the move, and it's not going to change. Here, too, it strikes me that the books of the Torah and the whole of our Hebrew Bible are an account largely of people on the move, migrating, fleeing, wandering, seeking refuge, experiencing exile and alienation, yet also having moral obligations towards exiles, travelers, aliens, and refugees. This dimension of peoples in movement, migrating, is the status quo. It's the bigger picture in our sacred Jewish texts, and in the world of today. Maybe that, too, is something special to focus on, to expand upon, to share with a world in need. Thank you to Rabbi James Barden from Sharai Sedek, North London Reform Synagogue, with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Herschel Gluck, Gemma Wayne, Dr. Helen Fry, Emma Klein and Mark Machado, who were on the schmooze, and of course, you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can search for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.